You're listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. Our mission is to bring the hope of Jesus to Jaffrey and beyond. We are here to know Christ, grow in Christ, and serve others. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. In fact, our everyday decisions in how we're representing Christ. To challenge our thinking to be able to answer these two core questions. One, is he worthy? Is Jesus worthy? And the second is, is he the greatest treasure you have? What motivates us to live out and share our faith in the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ? We can look around this world and We are very blessed here in the United States, and we can't fathom a a way in which we're just not met with the church, a Christian, the gospel, Jesus, in any way. Thankfully, our our church is aware of unreached people groups, and if you're not, globally, there are 17, over 17,000 people groups. 7,000 of those people groups would be categorized as unreached. That is, they have, are less than 2% Christian, which makes up for over 3 billion people. It's 41% of the world's population would be considered unreached. But there's another group within the unreached people group that many don't realize exists. And they would be categorized as frontier people groups. And that means they have 0.1% or fewer Christians of any kind with no evidence of sustaining gospel movement. 0.1% or fewer. So of the 7,000 unreached people groups, that means 4,761 fall under the category of frontier. That means less than 0.1% Christian. This is nearly 2 billion people. One-fourth of the global population have almost no chance of hearing the gospel from someone within their own people group. And I'd like to introduce you to a few of these people groups right now. One people group of the Hawaii in China the way are an official minority in China. In fact, you may have heard of them in the news as well. They have faced many genocides over the years. In fact, one of the worst cases of genocide in history took place against them from 1855 to 1873 when over one million of them were massacred. They're known to be sharp businessmen. In fact, a Chinese proverb from the 1800s states that a Chinese awake is not the the equal of a Hawaii sleeping. Almost all of them are Sunni Muslims. They worship in in thousands of mosques that are all throughout China. They have a population of 13,738,000. They have the Bible in their language ready to be communicated to them. If we use the ratio that many in missions use, that we need one missionary for every 50,000 people, 
the way people need 275 workers to get into their region and work with that people group. We have the Arabs in Morocco. They're the ancestors of Moroccan Arabs that originated in the Arabian desert. From there, they gradually migrated into northern Africa. And over the centuries, the Arabs have become more somewhat intermingled with the Berbers, and this has influenced their way of life. Most Moroccan Arabs are rural peasants, and so farming has become their way of life. Virtually all Moroccan Arabs in this region are Muslim. They would adhere to the Quran, observe the five basic pillars of Islam, which include affirming that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad, his prophet. The New Testament is already written in their language to be able to reach 24,511,000 of them. And yet, again, using that ratio of one for every 50,000, we need to see 490 workers go into this people group to reach them with the gospel. We have the sheikhs in Bangladesh. The term sheikh is used here for a social culture group that originated with Arab settlers in South Asia, which now includes many different subgroups. The main profession of urban sheikhs are business and public service and are stereotyped for their reputation of making uh, these decisions. There's a lot of potential for gospel growth within the sheikh community because there are relatively few social divisions. Population of this people group is 134,244,000. They have the Bible in their language ready to go, but we need to see 2,685 workers to help saturate the gospel in that region. Why, as believers, is representing Christ so important? Why is it that we should have some sort of yearning to reach other people with the gospel that, Lord willing, has impacted your life? I believe it comes from Revelation chapter 5. And I'd love to, to read that through us as we enter this, the throne room of, of heaven. And we have this moment that's revealed to us there, starting in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 5. It says here, John records here, he says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. 
And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This morning, I want to talk talk about three truths that we gleam from this chapter in Revelation, which then will lead us to four implications that if these three truths are in fact true in our lives, then we can't help but respond from those truths. We see in verse one, there's this scroll that is in question. The scroll representing the, the redemption, the, the rescue. It's, it's the end conclusion of all of mankind. It represents Christ's title deed to all that the Father promised him because of his sacrifice on the cross. And Jesus, Christ, being the heir of all things. In Psalm 2.8, it's recorded, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. The God who creates, the God who sustains, the God who knows, the God who ordains, the God who owns everything holds that scroll. We're faced then with a reality that in God's hand lies the destiny of all, that God does not need us. We do not have a picture of God who is in desperate need of his creatures in order to accomplish his plan. He chooses to use us, but it's according to his design, his plan, not ours. God has a definite plan for history. And it's consummation. It's mapped out. It's set. It will not fail. This is what lies in the hand of God. And as this vision unfolds, the the reality of seeing this scroll turns the atmosphere into one of absolute despair. As those that are crying out, who, who's worthy to open this scroll? The redemption of mankind, the rescue 
There's a desperate search and no one is found. And it's recorded here that that John begins to, to break down. He weeps loudly because no one was found. That without Christ, all of humanity is utterly hopeless. This deed, it can't be opened by anyone else except the appointed heir. And the appointed heir for this title deed, this scroll, this redemption, this rescue of mankind is Jesus Christ. No one in all the universe could be found worthy enough to break the seals. And so it's no wonder that John wept, for he realized that God's glorious redemption plan for mankind could never be completed until that scroll was opened. Without this scroll being open, all of humanity is lost forever, damned to hell forever. And so John completely breaks down because all appears to be lost. But then the greatest news that the whole world sees is that Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, reigns as the sovereign Lord of all. In verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The greatest news for the whole world is that Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, reigns as the sovereign Lord of all. He's the one who's worthy to open this scroll. He is the redeemer. He has paid the price to enact the redemption of mankind. Revelation 5 tells us it's because of who he is. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the lamb. This is all language we see scattered throughout the Old Testament to point to the coming Messiah, one who would be far greater than anything else that had been put in place, far greater than the law, someone that would, who would accomplish the law, the, some, the one that would be able to offer redemption that is lasting and eternal. We see this theme of the lamb. If you've spent any time in scripture, you see the lamb mentioned often in Christ being viewed as the lamb. You see lambs in the Old Testament that are used in the sacrificial system. It's an important image throughout scripture because it represents the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. The Old Testament kept asking the question, where is the lamb, the ultimate lamb, the redeemer, the savior? It was asked all the way back in Genesis. It ends up being answered by John the Baptist who cries out as he sees Jesus approaching. He says, behold, the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And then we have this moment in heaven I want us just to pause and and see this moment here. Jesus takes this scroll out of the hand of God. For he is the one who has fulfilled what was needed to be accomplished to open that scroll. And then there's this moment where all the creatures in heaven, above heaven, beneath, 
everything comes together and they worship in a way that was never possible to do before. To be able to sing, worthy is the Lamb. It's because of, not only because of who he is, but because of where he is. To begin with, Jesus is in heaven. He's not in a manger. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not on the cross and he's not in the tomb. He's ascended and exalted in heaven. He is alive. What an encouragement that, that this is to suffering Christians, to know that the Savior was defeat, has defeated every enemy and is now controlling events from glory, he too suffered, but God turned his suffering into glory, and that same promise is provided to us. But it's also because of what he has done and what he is doing. He was born in weakness. He died in weakness. But he is the recipient of all power. He became the poorest of the poor, and yet he owns all the riches of heaven and earth. Men laughed at him, called him a fool, yet he is the very wisdom of God. He shared in the sinless weaknesses of humanity as he hungered, thirsted, and became weary. But today in glory, he possesses all strength. On earth, he experienced humiliation and shame as sinners ridiculed and reviled him. They laughed at his kingship and attired him in a mock robe, crown, and scepter. But all of that is changed now, for he has received all honor and glory in his rightful place in the throne room of God. He became a curse for us on the cross so that we can never be under the curse of the broken law. He took all our sin giving us his righteousness, sealing redemption with his life and resurrection. As we unpack this, I hope it begins to make more sense why John has this response in the way he does, this sense of awe, of what kind of treasure Jesus is, the desperation that we have without Christ. The treasure that Jesus is and must be, because without him, all of humanity... Each one of us is hopeless, but with him we can be rescued and united into the family of God. And so we see the praises of heaven occur. When Jesus walks in, he takes the scroll because redemption has been made possible. He is worthy of all praise. And so these are the three truths that in God's hand lied the destiny of all of us, and that without Christ, all of humanity is utterly hopeless, but that the greatest news for the whole world is that Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, reigns as the sovereign Lord of all. And keep in mind that all of this, all of this praise is centered on Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. It's not Christ, the teacher, it's not Christ the prophet, but Christ the Savior, who is the theme of their worship. While an unconverted person could praise the Creator, he certainly could not sincerely praise the Redeemer. 
And so all of heaven's praise came because the lamb took the scroll from the father's hand. God's great eternal plan would now be fulfilled. Hopelessness turned to joy. And creation would be set free from the bondage of sin and death. And one day the lamb will break the seals and put into motion events that will eventually lead to his coming to earth and the establishment of his kingdom. And so as we share in these worship services, these times in which we can reflect on these things, do you find your own heart saying amen to what we have sung? You may believe in Christ as the creator, but have you trusted him as your redeemer, which is the most important thing? Revelation 3.20 reminds us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The gospel of Jesus is clear. He offers redemption to us. Will we receive it? And if you have accepted his redemption, his salvation, if he is worthy, if he is your greatest treasure, then how does that impact our lives? And so there's four implications I want to draw out as we finish our time together this morning. One is that we must pray confidently for the spread of the gospel to all nations. We need to be passionate about the reality that God has redeemed all of humanity to those who will receive the gift that Christ has already paid for. So we need to pray to that end. We need to pray that the gospel will reach into these places of these people groups that don't yet have Christians in their locale. We need to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We must pray for our neighbors who are all around us, our co-workers who are all around us, those who we get to come in contact with in our community and that we're hopefully building relationship with because we want to make sure we're representing and sharing the name of Christ well. As we look at, at trying to gain knowledge and understanding of what God is doing throughout the world, there's some great tools that we can use. One of my favorites comes from the website PrayerCast. In fact, the video that we just watched together, the North Korea video, is provided by them. They give you some great prayer guides, all right? So you don't have to try to like, you know, break out the history books and figure out what all has happened there. They're going to help you understand what's going on there, what has happened there, what all the dynamics of the people groups are, provide you different videos that can help inform you of what's going on, info sheets about those people. And using these guides, sit down at the dinner table and be able to go through those prayer points and say, listen, here's this people group that, man, we, we want to see the Lord reach with the gospel. Or here's actually what's happening right now in the gospel, with the gospel there. Joshua Project is probably a, a more well-known site, which does a very similar thing. Each of these things can be used to just help inform your prayers. We need to be people of prayer about the gospel reaching the nations reaching our neighbors, reaching our coworkers. That's our first implication. The second implication is we must give sacrificially for the spread of the gospel to all nations. Statistically, the American church at large does, at large does not do a great job 
at giving to the spread of the gospel to the unreached. I'm thankful here at Hope that, that, that we don't fit the norm. That when it comes to giving and having a passion for global missions, we continue to grow in that area, especially as we consider the unreached. But the average of American churches, only 5% of their annual budget is given to missions. And only 0.5% go to the unreached. That leaves only 0.1% that actually goes to the frontier groups. On average, 95% of a church's budget comes right back to themselves. But this is the implication that challenges us on what we treasure. Do we treasure our comfort? Do we treasure our security? What is most important to you? So let's evaluate. Not by what you say, but by what your life actions say is most important to you. It's a great way to examine your life and your heart is to ask yourself the following questions. So parents, if I went up to your children and I asked them what mom and dad loves the most, what would they say? What is your dad most passionate about? Would they answer his job, his car, his sports team, or his hobby? Or is there a chance that he would say, he likes other stuff, but for sure my dad loves Jesus Christ the most? Spouses, if I asked your spouse what your greatest passion is, how would they answer? They're the ones that know the truth, don't they? They would know what is truly most important in your life and what you truly treasure. Students, what treasure are you revealing to your friends? Is it the obsessive need to be accepted by your peers? Is it the clothing you wear? Is, is it a deep passion for video games? But be honest, what would it say? What would they determine to be your true treasure? Retirees. Or as, uh, as Ryan put it, gracefully maturing. I believe it's one of what treasures are you revealing to those who are watching you? Are they seeing you very focused on the treasure of the seen, or would they indicate that your true retirement has yet to come within the unseen? Pastors, elders, leaders within the church, what treasure are you revealing to your followers? Do those you lead know without question that your true treasure is Jesus Christ and his kingdom? Or would they say that your own ambition, empire, and lust for success is truly your treasure? We must give sacrificially to spread the gospel to all nations. What do you value most in life? The third implication is that we must go intentionally for the spread of the gospel to all nations. What might God be calling you to? Many of us may be like a Timothy, who is called to stay local, to dig down some roots, to impact your community, 
to build relationship. But the goal is still the same, to reach people for the gospel of Christ. To see them know who their savior really is. To reach into our workplaces, to reach into our neighbors' lives, to get to know them, to build relationship. But others of us might be like Paul. You've been called to go. Short-term, mid-term, long-term. I love the conclusion that J.C. Ryle makes when he realizes the treasure we have in Christ. He says this. He says, a zealous person in Christianity is preeminently a person of one thing. They have a passion for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If they are consumed in the very burning of their passion for God, they don't care. They are content. They feel that like a candle they were made to burn. And if they are consumed in the burning, then they have only done the work for which God has appointed them. And such a person will always find a spear for their zeal. Is God calling you to go? Thousands are needed to reach the millions who have yet to hear the name of Jesus Christ. Or are we too comfortable with the safety of our borders and the comforts we experience in our lives? Fourth and final implication. We must be willing to die for the spread of the gospel to all nations. In recent years, reports from around the world have been telling of Christians who face execution yet will not recant their faith in Jesus Christ. And people fed on a constant diet that devalues faith sit back in amazement. Why would anyone accept death rather than deny Christ? Because the world doesn't get it. True followers of Jesus won't forsake him because there's nothing else worth living for. When you've already received the greatest treasure there is, why would we settle for anything less? Imagine with me the shock of the disciples that they must have felt as Jesus tells them in Matthew 10, 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Jesus was saying to them by implication to you and to me as well that I am sending you to dangerous places where you will find yourself in the middle of evil and vicious people. And you will be there by my design, Jesus told them. So go to great danger and let it be said of you what people would say of sheep wandering in the middle of wolves. They're crazy. They're clueless. They have no idea what kind of danger they're getting into. This is what it means to be my disciple. But by and large, we don't think like this. We say things such as, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And we think, if it's dangerous, God must not be in it. If it's risky, if it's unsafe, if it's costly, it must not be God's will. But this is the unavoidable conclusion to Matthew 10. To everyone wanting a safe, untroubled, comfortable life, free from danger, stay away from from Jesus. The danger in our lives 
will always increase in proportion to the depth of our relationship with Christ. And if you think this is way out in left field, look at the culture we counteract against every single day. Are we prayerfully, lovingly willing to move outside our comfort zone, to risk reputation, to risk being mocked, to risk even maybe being killed for the sake of the gospel? There's a picture they're going to show up here. And this individual that's sitting with um, Marcy and I, his name is Malleus. We met Malleus while we were in uh, Madagascar, um, which is an a unreached people group by and large, depending on the region. Uh, we were actually with what would be considered kind of a frontier group where there are no Christians uh, that are known to be local there. Malleus is an awesome dude. Malleus was reached by a missionary on mainland Madagascar with the gospel. Malleus turned to Christ, began to grow in his faith and learn the things of scripture. And he, he, he had this desire that was growing within him. What might God want to use my life for? And so Malleus talked to his missionary friend and his missionary friend was able to provide him a location where he could begin to get some education on scripture and what it would mean to, to go outside of himself. Malleus didn't have the money to be able to go to this school there in Madagascar, and yet he took his bike, which was his only way of transportation even to get to where he needed to go, and he sold it for the down payment. What I didn't mention is Malleus' family is in no way supporting his decision whatsoever to turn to Christ. In fact, he has already been kicked out of his home, kicked out of his village, because his father's made it clear that if you are going to be a follower of Christ, then you are no son of mine, and if you ever come back into this village, you will be killed. Malleus sells his bike to make a down payment for his education, and he goes. God provides the funds, he gets educated. And then he's at that moment, what do I do now? He was sitting in a, in a meeting with some other missionaries and other believers. They were speaking of this village that was way out in the, in the, it, it, on the far side of Madagascar. And even locals were like, I don't know that we should go there. It's very dangerous. And Malleus goes, that's where I'm going. And so he went. He went into this village and in this village, he'd literally have to hike. Once a week, he would hike outside of the village for miles just to get enough cell signal to let those who knew he was there, I'm still alive. And he'd go back to the village. The first person that befriended Malleus was the village witch doctor. The first person that started introducing him to others in the village was the witch doctor. The first person that gave him somewhere to sleep was the witch doctor. The, the first person to gather the village to help build Malleus a hut there in that village was the witch doctor. The first person to come to Christ was the witch doctor. Yeah. 
And in that culture and that society, when someone that influential turns to Christ, in essence, the entire village came to Christ. And now that village sits as a place where other villages are being trained and equipped by this village to reach other villages who are just like them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Malleus did this because Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ was, is his greatest treasure. Malleus did this when he was about 23, 24 years old. Is he worthy? Is he the greatest treasure we have? Malleus absolutely believes so. Do you? Revelation 7, 9 through 10 tells us that all tribes, languages, and people groups will be present when we worship Christ, when God's redemption plan comes to a conclusion. But there are millions who have not heard and every moment are slipping into eternity because too many of us are sitting on our hands and unwilling to move our feet. Is the gospel and our sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, your treasure? Is he worthy? Is the gospel and our sacrificial lamb, Jesus, your treasure? Is he worthy of your funds? Is he worthy of your time? Is he worthy of your energies? Is he worthy of your life? If you've never had an opportunity to read Radical by David Platt, you need to. But he shares a great illustration that we'll conclude with. He shares towards the end in his book, he says, in the late 1940s, the United States government commissioned William Francis Gibbs to work with United States Lines to construct an $80 million troop carrier for the Navy. The purpose was, was to design a ship that could speedily carry 15,000 troops during times of war. By 1952, construction on the SS United States was complete. The ship could travel at 44 knots, about 51 miles an hour. She could steam 10,000 miles without stopping for fuel or supplies. She could outrun any other ship and travel nonstop anywhere in the world in less than 10 days. The SS United States was the fastest and most reliable troop carrier in the world. The only catch is she never carried troops, at least not in any official capacity. The ship was put on standby once during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, but otherwise she was never used in all her capacity by the U.S. Navy. Instead, the SS United States became a luxury liner for presidents, heads of state, and a variety of other celebrities who traveled on her during her 17 years of service. As a luxury liner, she couldn't carry 15,000 people. Instead, she could house just under 2,000 passengers. Those passengers would enjoy the luxuries of 695 staterooms, four dining salons, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck with a heated pool, 19 elevators, and the comfort of the world's first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. Instead of a vessel used for battle during wartime, the SS United States became a means of indulgence for wealthy patrons who desired to coast peacefully across the Atlantic. Things look radically different on a luxury liner than they do on a troop carrier. 
The faces of soldiers preparing for battle and those of patrons enjoying their bonbons are radically different. The, cons con the conservation of resources on a troop carrier contrasts sharply with the opulence that characterizes the luxury liner. And the pace at which the troop carrier moves is by necessity much faster than that of the luxury liner. After all, the troop carrier has an urgent task to accomplish. The luxury liner, on the other hand, is free to casually enjoy the trip. When I think about the history of the SS United States, I wonder if she has something to teach us about the history of the church. The church, like the SS United States, has been designed for battle. The purpose of the church is to mobilize a people to accomplish a mission. Yet we seem to have turned the church as troop carrier into the church as luxury liner. We seem to have organized ourselves not to engage in battle for the souls of people around the world, but to indulge ourselves in the peaceful comforts of the world. This makes me wonder what would happen if we looked squarely in the face of a world with 4.5 billion people going to hell and 26,000 children dying every day of starvation and preventable diseases, and we decided it was time to move this ship into battle instead of sitting back on the pool deck while we wait for the staff to serve us more appetizers. Are we willing to obey the orders of Christ? Are we willing to be like him? Are we willing to risk our lives to go to great need and to great danger, whether it's in the inner cities around us, the difficult neighbors across the street, the disease-ridden communities in Africa, or the hostile regions in the Middle East? Are we willing to fundamentally alter our understanding of Christianity from a luxury liner approach that seeks more comforts in the world to a troop carrier approach that forsakes comforts in the world to accomplish an eternally significant task and achieve an eternally satisfying reward? Is he worthy? Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain. By your blood, you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Let's join in the myriads, the thousands upon thousands upon millions of angels and saints to say a million times, yes, he is worthy. A million times, yes, he, our Jesus, and this gospel is worthy because Jesus is my greatest treasure. Lord, as we reflect on these things, Lord, would we turn our praise and our gaze that we would not be focused on self, that we would be solely focused on you and your mission and all the things that we get to enjoy, that they would be just opportunities to reach people through the gospel, to build relationship. For those who have been called to stay, would our staying be worthy of what you have asked us to do? Lord, if you called us to go, would you give us boldness to go, to be about your work? 